Blog Talk Radio. Come on, put your hands together. Great is the Lord. Because when I first saw the, when I first saw the picture and I heard the title and it was like, okay, I get that, I understand that, you know, and you know, just reading up on it, it's actually not the first book; it's the second book in a it's the sequel book. And I was like, wow, mm-hmm. this is going to be nice. Oh, so, 
one I'm thing, sorry, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, one thing, you know how a lot of people, they want money, they want all this fame, and Brian, this person, she had all of that, but it really didn't, it, there was still a void there. And when we finally get a chance to talk to our, to our special guest, we're going to talk about her new book and the new things that she's in, and Brian, I can see this easily becoming a movie. <laughs> look at you! Look at hey, you! Hey, I'm just when you see it, and I mean, it, she she's gonna have to turn this into a movie, Brian. I believe she's on the call right now, but uh, uh, go ahead. Let's go ahead and introduce her, Brian. We have on the call tonight, Miss Dawn Abrams, and Miss Abrams is a best-selling author, editor, publisher, professional speaker, and radio show host, and she's also the founder, publisher, and editorial director of. Nevia Publishing LLC, which is a small press independent publishing house. And we'd like to introduce her now and thank her for coming on the show, Ms. Dawn Abrams. Well, hello. How are you gentlemen doing this evening? How are you? We're doing I'm good. doing good. Thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you for Absolutely. coming on. Absolutely. Welcome. Yes. Your new book, My Mother's Child. Wow. Yes. <laughs> it's actually my fifth. Oof. It's actually your fifth book. Oh, right. Yes, indeed, and it is the sequel to Divorce and the Devil, as you mentioned. Wow. Yes, yes. Now, that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Divorcing the Devil. Before we before we talk about the new book, give us a little bit of information and some insight on the old book, because I want to lead people who who may not have purchased the old book, you know, to get the old book first and then buy the new book. Well, that oh, would make sense. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, before. because they, the thing with this is that um, Mary St- My Mother's Child is actually a standalone sequel. So what that means is that you didn't have to necessarily have read Divorcing the Devil in order to enjoy this storyline. Mm-hmm. But the main character in My Mother's Child is a deranged stalker by the name of Nigel, and he was only briefly introduced to readers in Divorcing the Devil. So in Divorcing the Devil, it was about a psychoanalyst, and her patients, and they were going through all sorts of turmoil and just drama left and right. Even her best friend found out some things about her husband that just led to complete chaos, and even some of the results were deadly, and the situations were the situations were totally life-changing. Well, in Divorcing the Devil, the psychoanalyst was so busy solving everybody else's problems that she didn't even realize that she herself was the victim of a stalker until it was too late. So that's when readers were introduced to Nigel. And I had a lot of people telling me, did I miss him? How did I miss him? They went back and reread the book. They flipped through pages, just thinking they must have missed him somewhere along the way, and they didn't. It was He only came up in one very brief scenario where he was revealed, and only by his name. And he, there was nothing else about him, and that was very deliberate. And so now in My Mother's Child, people get inside of the mind of this deranged individual and how he blends into into society being so charismatic and just really making his victims kind of melt when they're around him because he's a really good-looking guy. He helps you to let your guard down, and he seems successful. And so he doesn't appear at all to be someone that would be a danger or a threat. And so that's how he's able to do things with his victims because he kind of lurks in the background until he's ready to be seen and if he's ready to be seen it's too late. Mm. One mm. one thing I yeah, one thing I like about the book is uh the wife uh married a surgeon. Or she right. saying all that. Well I guess we can say that. There's a heart surgeon. We're not gonna say too much more than that, but I can you know <laughs> from his job yeah, don't give away the unexpected twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What you know they have money. Right. But there's still something missing. And I think a lot of people, when they get married, uh, the man usually says, well, you know, I'm going to give you the world, I'm going to give you this. But there's something, there's a void there somewhere that's missing. And that sounds like that, that what, you know, this is what happened with their marriage. Right. That's very true. Very observant with that. And the character you're talking about is Lyric Stokes, and she is married to a prominent heart surgeon. And by all standards, she seems to live this charmed life. And most women would think, wow, you could marry this guy who's successful, he's professional, and he loves you, and he can pay all the bills. What do you have to complain about? Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to the grass being greener on the other side. 
We always want what we can't have. And when I say we, sometimes that can be human nature, but more often than not it's true for women because I have spoken to lots of men through the years, and they have a common complaint. No matter what you do for a woman, she'll want something else. So if she says, I want this new car, and you get her that new car, next year she wants another car, and you're going to have to do whatever it is. And if you buy her the car she wants, she's going to complain because you didn't put gas in the car, keep her tank full, because you don't wash it on a regular basis, and -and so-and-so's husband is always keeping her car detailed and spotless, and because you're not washing her car and filling up her gas tank and going to take it to get service, you're a loser. And it doesn't matter that you bought the car. So that's how the mindset of a lot of women, it is that way. So they can have their dream house. They can move into that dream house, and they'll love it. They'll even have a maid come in to clean it up and keep it spotless. But at the end of the day, if there's internal things going on, she still won't be happy because what a lot of people haven't learned yet is it's not the material things that make you happy. You have to be content within yourself. You have to know who you are. You have to be grounded in something. And you have to have a purpose. If you don't feel like you're living your life's purpose, which is more than about making money, it's about living on purpose and doing what you were placed on this earth to do, if you're not doing that, no matter what someone else has, no matter what someone else gives you, you won't be happy. And that's what Lyric's problem is, is because she herself hasn't found her own true identity as of yet, and she's still linked up into her husband. She's a doctor's wife and not herself. Well, I tell you what, I, I think this is going to be a movie. I'm still, I'm sticking with that, Brian. I'm not, I'm not going to back off of that one. This well, is, thank you for that. Okay, from your lips to God's ears, we would right. love that. But I, I definitely, when I write, I like to see things in my head, and I kind of can visualize um, a lot of the things that I write in terms of that. So, if it ever became a movie, I would be the first one to contact you and say thank you for speaking that into existence because I receive it. <laughs> well, good, good. It's out there now, Brian. We can't take it back. It's out there. And I, I truly do believe that this is definitely going to turn into a movie. All you have to do is just go in and buy the book. Don, can they go to your website and purchase the book from there? Um, they can, but I don't really have like a supply on hand that I'm like okay. selling that way. But this is how they can get it. My brand new, my latest release, well, actually, my last three titles, my inspirational titles, Divorce and the Devil, um, Married Strangers, and My Mother's Child, they're all available on Black Expressions Book Club. Um, They're available um, usually at Walmart, and if you don't see it at Walmart, you'll probably see My Mother's Child because they normally get my new titles in right away. Of course, Barnes & Noble, Borders, online, Amazon, um, BN.com, any of those, Books A Million, Walden Books, all the bookstores should have copies of it. And if they don't, go request it. I was just and of about course, to they say can that. always go to my website, too. They can always go to my website, and it will link to the online booksellers. So my website is www.dewanabrams.com. Well, let me go back. I'm going to go back to, the, to, to what you were saying about men being married and the woman wanting this and the woman wanting that. I see a lot of that. Uh, a lot of my my friends say the same thing, and even a lot yeah. of the women say the same thing. I mean, what what do you do when a woman says, "You know what? It just seems like I'm never satisfied. I always want this. I always want more." But is it, is it that there's a void in their life and they're chasing something, but the thing that they're chasing is not what they really need? Now that's powerful. What you just said about they're chasing something that they don't need. Because we want a lot of things, okay, but is it what we need? And I think that's where we get it twisted because at the end of the day, if you have a safe place to lay your head, if you're able to pay your bills on time and you're not sitting in the dark or your water's turned off or any of that and you're able to get to a job, if you have a job in this bad economy, consider yourself to be blessed. But what we get sucked into as women is that we're never satisfied with what we have because there's always someone that we perceive as having more. And what I mean by that is you can have a great guy who loves you, treats you very well, does all of that, but then a woman will say he's not edgy enough, he's not he's not tough enough, he's too sensitive or he's too this. And then they go and get with that guy who's hardcore, who's this, then it's he's disrespectful. 
I can't trust him. He's always gone. You know, they think he's cheating or he may be verbally or even physically abusive. Okay, so then they don't want that anymore. Now they want the nice guy that they've turned away. Then they get the nice guy and they penalize him for everything that the bad guy did. So it's like a vicious cycle. It's like if they have one kind of guy, they want a different one. If they have a rich guy who's working every day, then he's neglectful because he doesn't spend enough time with them, like what Lyric's situation is with her husband. She's feeling like, I have this home, I have this car, I have all this money, but my husband works. Okay, but what she's not realizing is there's another woman out there complaining about the guy who doesn't work, and he's at home all the time, and he's broke, and she would love to have Lyric's husband who actually goes to work. And Lyric is like, well, it's not about money. It's about my time. I want quality time. But what women tend to tend to fail to realize is that more often than not, there's, it's never going to be perfect. But if you've got a guy who works, be glad about that because the guy who doesn't work, that won't last very long either because he'll be giving you all his time and he'll be all in your face, but he has no money. So if a guy's working and being honest, be happy with that. But too, too often women just, we just don't, we always want what we can't have. Let's put it like that. So whatever it is, a woman will tend to want the opposite. If she's got kids, she's like, wow, why did I have these kids? Even though she may love them to pieces. If the, her girlfriend is single and free and able to get up and go, she's envying that lifestyle, not realizing that the single girlfriend is envying her because she's yearning for the husband and the children. See, women always want what they can't have. Mm. Mm. I'm taking wow. notes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners are taking notes. Yes, I'm taking you know, notes. It, you know, it's intriguing that, you know, we have on the show a woman who's pretty much, I don't want to say it in a negative way, but it's sort of exposing some of the character flaws that many women suffer from. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, see, don't because put me on blast because my, my email will be blowing up. Ooh, why did you tell them that? Women are not like And then I'm like, yeah, you know, we're all like that. <laughs> yes, I don't mind telling it. <laughs> going against the code. She knows. That's you know. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, but you know what? I, I, we we can go against the code for the men, Brian. I mean, every man wants to do this for the their, their wives. I mean, I don't know any man when they first get married, they want to be able to supply her every need. But mm-hmm. when you try so hard and you're able to do some things and, and she, you know, she's glad to get the things that you give her, and I'm not saying that everything is a material thing, but just the things that a man wants to bless his wife with. Mm-hmm. And when she starts, like you said, this is not enough, I want this, I want this, I want this, he's going to stop. Exactly. He's going to pull back, he's going to stop. That's true. Yeah, he, or you're taking me for granted. I, I mean, I, I bust my butt, I did all of this, I, I gave it to you, but next week you want new furniture. The week right. after that, you want to go to to Hawaii for seven days or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's just always something, something, something. And you're right that that will kill a marriage. Absolutely, and I mean we have to really remember that we have as women we have to put our wants in check, and that's what we really have to just learn how to do. But it's so hard, and the reason it's so hard for women is because there's so many things that they see in life. Okay, mm-hmm. for example. If a woman is, if she watches soap operas, and that's a big killer, women need to stop watching soap operas. I mean, yeah. really, retire from it. And the reason because of that is because everybody on the soap operas are rich, okay? And so if a woman in her real everyday life sees this woman's husband coming home with flowers, he comes home early from the office, he, they hardly ever show the guy at work, and when he does, he can leave at the drop of a hat to go take his beautiful wife on some exotic trip or take her out to this romantic dinner and they're eating out every night and the guy's always in the mood to, you know, do all the husbandly duties and their house is spotless and the woman is dressed nice every day and they have this ideal life that's not real, but then these women see this five days a week for a few hours a day. So when she's in her own life and she's cleaning up that house, her husband walks through the door, he's tired and all of this, it doesn't look glamorous to her. So she wants something else. She becomes bored. She becomes despondent, displaced, and she's just like, why am I even doing this? 
and it's even worth all of this. And then pretty soon that husband doesn't look good anymore because now he comes home in a uniform or he's not wearing that suit and all of this, and he's not whining and dining her, so he's not appealing anymore. And so the complaints start coming because she's seeing something that she can't have. Or when she sees these couples, these power couples in Hollywood, without knowing their plight, without knowing what they've been through, you see their homes and their cars, and these women are all dolled up and glamorous, and then the women want that. They yearn for that. They're yearning for this baller. They're yearning for this rapper. They're yearning for this guy to give them an exciting life. And I think really what it boils down to is that women really want excitement in their day-to-day life because that's what they see other people have. And when they don't feel, when they feel like real life kicks in and real life isn't exciting, then they want their yearning. It's like a constant, like a hole in their soul, literally, that can't ever be filled because it's yearning for something and it, it just doesn't, they don't understand how to even fill it. That's the bottom line. Hmm. I love that. Wow. <laughs> I love it because he I've been said, saying that for the longest. I'm trying to understand what. <laughs> I, I get frustrated when I see it. I, I I wish I could just throw the television out the door. Why yeah. are you listening and having uh, fun or, or or it's entertainment when you see someone cheating on their husband, right. sleeping with this person, this lady sleeping with that person? You talking about killing somebody? How is that entertainment? I, I don't exactly. understand that. But see, that's just it. It's because, but the thing is, it's a vicious cycle because if you think about it, most women will tell you that they don't even know how they started watching soap operas. They just know they always have because usually their mother watched it or their grandmother watched it. It's usually one or both, and that's just how they get hooked on them. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, and I would sit down with my grandmother, and she would love to watch the soaps. That's what they call them, the soaps. We were watching the soaps. And I was a little kid, so of course I knew what they were before I knew what any other programs were because I knew grown women were rushing home to watch these stories, okay? And so then when I got to be an adult and I was in college, I was watching one soap opera so badly that I would schedule my college classes around that soap opera for one hour out of the day. If my classes were at that same time, I would not take that class. Now, you see, that's how bad it was. But my point is that I'm not alone in that. There are so many women who had the same thing. When they think back, they're like, "Why wow, my grandmother watched it. You know, my mom watched it. So if they watched it, then you automatically watch it because it was in your house. And you just grow up watching it. And then pretty soon it's like some women get hooked. And they're not even watching just one soap opera a day. Most of them will watch all the ones that come on a particular channel. So can you imagine that you carve out three or four hours out of your day on some nonsense that's not putting anything positive into your life, but yet you're watching this, and that's what's, what you're creating. And you know that they're no good. You know that they don't have good morals or values or any of that. But then it, we start accepting it. We start accepting these soap operas for what they do, that just jacked up mentality, and it just becomes a part of our life. And then we start yearning for things we can't have. You know, it's amazing. I was told when I was young that, you are what you eat. Right. And so if you're always eating that type of stuff, if you're always eating those type of controversies, it would seem that you you, you, you sort of identify with it. Exactly. You know, and, you, and you relate to it. And I've even seen where people will actually use it and say, well, in such and such story, you know, because I remember hearing somebody talking about it, and I'm thinking, are they talking about the stories or something real? Mm-hmm. You know, but it was just that they were like, well, if I had such and such and, you know, if he was my man, I wouldn't have never let him do that to me. And, and I'm like, exactly. are you serious? Right, but, exactly. You know, and I'm thinking they're talking about somebody real and right. they're talking about, oh, no, we're talking about the guy in life or the young and the restless. <laughs> I mean, That's if, right. if you even look at some of the names that they That's use right. in the stories, not to call them out, but, you know, the young and the restless. And I don't right. remember a whole lot of young people on there. That's you know, right. all these exactly. people were professionals or right. the guiding light. And it's like there couldn't be any light guiding the lives of those people. <laughs> That's the truth. That is you know. the truth. I guess, Absolutely. I, guess, yeah, I, I, and I, I don't want to stay on this too long, but I finally found somebody that agreed with me on this on these soaps. And I was watching Fred Sample one day, and he said, if, if, if they call it the soaps, why is it so dirty? 
Oh, that was good. <laughs> and it it's was, definitely that. It's definitely he, that. But Fred Sanford watched them. I mean, Red Fox, he watched them, and it was just funny when he said that. It was eye opener to me. And right. I just, I just don't understand how a person without uh, the, the financial status of the people that's in the stories, how right. can they relate to that, or do they imagine themselves in that role, doing those things? Because a lot of women pull those stunts. Right. They pull those stunts that they see Ooh. on that show. And, and what Brian said, yeah, Brian said a lot of, you know, he he said that you are what you eat. Absolutely. And I was told, I was told, you are what you allow to come inside of you. Absolutely. That's why we're supposed to guard our eyes and our yeah. ears with all diligence. And, mm. you know, it's it's just strange that, you know, it's just some things that we shouldn't see. It's some things that we shouldn't hear. Right. And I hate it. I can't. I see people watching that on their lunch break. And, oh, yes. And I was in the gym. Just I just left the gym today. And, and I heard some guys. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know a few of those two who watch it as well. I do, I do. Yes, oh, sure. it, because it's just a part of people's lives. And But it's the drama. And what we get so caught up in is we accept things that we know we shouldn't accept. If you watch the soaps, it'll teach you how to cheat. It'll teach yep. you how to lie. It'll teach oh, you yeah. everything that you you know, know you don't need to do. Hmm. But that's right. how it is. But, you know, a lot of people, I hear a lot of people, and it's so sad, you know, going to church on Sundays is like the story. Right. You have all the drama in the churches. I'm like, wait a minute. That now that that's pretty bad when you start comparing something like that to the church. Absolutely. And, but that's but, where we are now. Yeah. 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 That, that's that's mm. true. And that's another reason why um fiction books that are filled with church drama are so immensely popular. Mm. Mm. But what gave you what gave you the idea to write your books? What inspired you to write your books? I, I because I know that there's a there's a message to all of your books. Right. There's a powerful message to all of your books. Well, thank you for that. Um, basically, for me, some years back, I was on a on a literary trip, like a writer's retreat, and I met my first Christian fiction author in person, and I didn't even know that Christian fiction was even a genre in the first place. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about it, at first I didn't think I would like it because I thought it would be about a bunch of perfect people preaching things and just kind of preaching to the choir, and I thought it was going to be a bunch of scripture and just things like that, and I really didn't think that would make for good reading. But then when I read this book, it wasn't anything like that. It was filled with romance, and it had drama, and it had twists and turns, and it was like real life. You know, everybody wasn't perfect, and everybody wasn't in, in church in every scene, and everybody wasn't quoting scriptures throughout. And I was like, wow, the only difference between the Christian fiction writing is that we have an overall message, you know, of like redemption or whatever the case might be, but we help people because at the end of the day, although our writing is for entertainment, it's also to uplift people, and it's also something that they can read and leave on the in their church seat, like as far as no profanity, nothing explicit. However, though, we do, we do give entertainment. We do have relations and things with people in our books, and we do all those things, but we want people to understand that because our characters are flawed, we're helping someone progress to the next level. We Like if someone is dealing with the spirit of adultery or they're doing whatever, then we help them through that because our characters deal with that too, but we just offer them like a solution or some kind of hope that they can get something better out of it. So for me, the inspiration that comes from me writing is, one, being able to help people, but two, I just like to write about the real you know, I don't write about what I hope things to be, a perfect world or any of that. I write about real things, real issues that affect real people. And so when I write that, the storylines come to me And because there's always so much to write about in real life. I mean, the things that we encounter, we hear about on the news, all of that inspires me. There's people that I talk to. They can say something, and it'll trigger an idea for a character. So it's not just any one particular thing, but I like to say it's kind of everything. Life inspires me to write what I write. Awesome. Mm. You know, that's a word right there, life inspires. Mm -hmm. you Thank know, you. What was your initial inspiration for becoming a writer? Well, um, that's really, that's kind of hard to say because I've always loved to write, and English was my favorite subject in school. 
And it was one of those classes that I knew I would get like an easy A because I love to write papers and that type of thing. But what probably turned the page for me was when I had someone in my life that was a column, a journalist, excuse me, and they would write columns for a newspaper. And when they would get writer's block, they would ask me to help them to help with their column. And so every time I would do that, it kind of put a little bug in me, like planted a seed that said, you know, I could do this. I could write a column. I could do this. And one day I remember I had just finished writing a column for this person, and I remember thinking, I want to write a book. And that was it. And that was some years ago, and that sparked it. And after that, I have been writing ever since. Oh, you know what? That just that that answer just gave me another question. What do you do when, it, or if you do get writer's block? What do you do to sort of stave off your writer's block? Because I know a lot of writers that they sort of start to write. You know, myself included. When I write stuff, and I I can never finish it. Right. Like the way that I want to finish it. Well, you know, yeah, I can understand that. Well, for me, I remember the one time I thought I did have like a writer's block, but what I ended up doing was when I went to sleep, I dreamt about the character, and they wrote themselves out of a scenario because I thought I had written them into a corner, and I didn't know how in the world I was going to be able to finish my book with them. I was like, okay, I've written them to this point. What do I do from here? And when I went to bed and I dreamt about them, it was like, that's, you know, where I need to take this story next. And so they wrote themselves out of the situation for me. So that was beautiful. But now I don't get writer's block. And the reason I think I don't is because I'm always doing something literary. My full-time job is being a writer. And so I also, although I write for um, Urban Books slash Kensington, I'm signed to them, but at the same time, I also do freelance editing, and on the side I have a separate small press publishing house where I publish other authors. And so I'm constantly in the throes of that business. So every single day I'm doing something literary, whether I'm editing someone's manuscript or I'm reviewing a submission or working on my own writing, I'm always involved in something that's making me think, you know, using my brain on a daily basis. And so because of that, it helps me to stay fresh in my own ideas because then even when I'm editing someone else's work, then it helps me to sharpen my own skills and then my characters will speak to me still while I'm doing that. And so when I put down their work, then the juices are still flowing and then I can go right into my work later on in the evening. Mm-hmm. All right, great. So I think that's down. the key to writers to getting over writer's block is to always still do something that's literary, whether you're reading or whether you're editing or just, you know, plugging through on your own writing. But either way, you still have to do something toward it every day, and then that will keep your characters talking to you, and that will keep your story flowing. Because some days you may not feel like writing, but I just say don't force it. Don't force yourself to put a story down because then it will feel contrived. But at the same time, don't allow yourself to not write for days or weeks on end, but just write little things, even if you have to write down a to-do list even if you have to just write down anything, just a, a sentence toward whatever you want, even if you do a character sketch, all of that is still related to writing. Just continuously do things related to the craft, and I think you'll be okay. I think that will help you plug through writer's block. I, I no, see, Greg, I, I'll oh, yeah. tell you, Greg, the most important <laughs> part of that that she said was to use your brain. Yeah. <laughs> So I got that I part. I think that's the biggest. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's like don't just, you know, let it turn to mush. Don't watch TV all day. That doesn't require any real brain power. That's an inactive sport because you can watch TV and, you know, your brain can turn to mush. So that's not that doesn't require active thinking. But do things that require active thinking. That's, mm-hmm. that, that, that is true. I see a lot of people walking around with the little mini recorders, uh, and what they do is whenever it, something hit them or whatever, they can be anywhere. They'll just get up and walk off and just speak into it. And and at the end of the day, they can go back and type it up or whatever it is that they said. But uh, they do that so that they won't lose it or whatever it exactly. comes because it'll come like that. Right. Yeah, when the inspiration hits, it's definitely best to go ahead and put it down somewhere where you won't forget it, you know. And you have to be pretty organized with that, too. Because even if you write down an idea, but then you don't remember the paper you wrote it on, then it's no good for you. So you always have to be organized as well when you're doing things of that nature. 
And the and the beautiful thing about it is I can you know I can for an example, and I think it's a powerful example when you said that it just I just remember my mom talking to me all the time about when Jesus was in the wilderness for forty days and forty nights and the devil mm-hmm. came to him and he was tempting him to do all these different things. We all know about that story, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Every time the devil tempted Jesus, Jesus would always say, "For it is written." written. <laughs> That's right. Every single written. time he would say, for right. it is written. he never said, for it is said, he said, for it is written. That's so right. that that just goes to show how important it is for you to write things down. Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't know about you or Brian, but sometimes when I'm, I, I can be asleep, tired, and mm-hmm. wake up in the middle of the night knowing something woke me up. Right. And, and, and I'm given something that's so profound, and I'm trying to go back to sleep. And I just have to get up, and I can't go back to sleep until I get up and write it down. Yes, and for then sure. I'll just, yeah, and then I'll write it down, and I'm able to go back to sleep. Right. Well, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, for me, <laughs> I, I've started sleeping with a notepad next to the bed for that very reason, because sometimes if something wakes me up, or if I have a dream that was, like, really something, mm-hmm. then I'll go ahead and write that down, you know, because you don't want to forget some of that stuff. It, sometimes it has a meaning. It may not mean anything at that moment, but in the future it could have a meaning when you refer back to it. And especially if you, you if it's something that you don't understand. And right. And you're praying and you're asking for that thing to be made clear. That's so true. You know, or you're asking for, some people may question things, and, and God, right. he'll answer it. Yes, indeed. He, he will yes, indeed. answer it. I agree with that. He will yeah. answer it. Yeah, but it's we just, just have to be quiet and be still. Yes. Let me ask you this: as far as uh, a lot of people, everybody want to write books. Everybody want to be <laughs> in New York. They want to see yes. their books all over the place. Right. But now, now that you're writing and you're starting to see the success of what God has given you. Right. How does it feel knowing that God chose you for this task? Oh my goodness! Wow, it, it sometimes wow. All I can really say is that I'm very, very humble and very grateful and very appreciative to God for what He's doing in my life and for the people He sends my way. And sometimes when I get letters from readers and they say some of the most amazing things about how a certain book might have ministered to them, to their soul, and helped them, like some I've gotten when I wrote my book Married Strangers, that was um, the one before this one, My Mother's Child. When I wrote that book, I didn't know like why I was writing about relationships, about couples in different stages of their relationships. And God just told me to give people like a glimpse into it because there were a lot of women out there who had like really not true ideas about being engaged or being married or any of that. And so I wrote it knowing that these people were going to be introduced. And one couple was engaged, one was newly married, and one had been married for a while but going through like relationship problems like financial and trust issues. And when I wrote that, I thought, okay, well, I definitely will later develop these characters into their own individual books. And that was my intention. But when I started getting emails from some of the readers, these women were crying out to me saying that they were experiencing the same things and they didn't know who they could talk to. And one lady said that she did not even know that, you know, people even were, like, sexually incompatible with their spouse because she she thought she was alone. And to read that someone else was experiencing that, it really blew her away. And she thanked me to let just feeling like it was hope that she didn't have to leave her marriage and, you know, because she was thinking about cheating on him and all sorts of things. And then I had another situation where a woman told me, and this really, like, just, it really, I can't even describe what it did to me, but she said that she wanted to know how I knew about her life because she said that I even had characters in the book, like her husband and his best friend were named the same as the characters in my book. And I thought, wow, you have got to be kidding me. She said it was speaking to her so loud and clear, ministering to her, because it was like when she saw the name, she was like, does this woman know me? You know, did someone talk to her? How did I know about her life? And I had never met the woman before, ever. And so that shows me that when God sends you a word and he sends you a message for something, you just have to be obedient to it and allow him to use you how he will, because some things that you write – is not for the masses per se, but it's to minister to a select group for what they need when they need it. And that's 
what I like about this is because although some of my books are packed with the drama and it's bringing it and it's got twists and turns and all of that stuff and it gives that entertainment value and it can reach those masses, but then at the same time there's that negative something that people can walk away with and be a, kind of a better person for it because of it or something they can remember, something that a character said or prayed or just even one little thing that will do it for them, and that, you know, makes it all worth it. So to have this calling on my life, I'm very thankful to God for it because I would not, I can't imagine myself doing anything else other than writing now, and I've been writing full-time for the past four years, and I can't imagine wanting to do anything else, but I thank God to be able to do what I love and to be to have some level of success with it. I'm I'm thankful for that because it's nothing but God. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I would I would say that there's a lot of people that would love to be able to make that statement. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the truth is they can. Right. That's what I'm saying sometimes. Sometimes you got to do that. But in this economy, I'm reluctant to say this, okay, so I don't want anybody quitting their day job and, you know, <laughs> acting like I'm just going to write full time because it's not an easy journey, and you do have to be called to do it. And I definitely wouldn't say do it before you've got at least a couple of books out that are, you know, you have some income coming in and that you have some things built up or you have a rich spouse or something, (laughs) you know, to pay the bills and make sure your lights stay cut on. But it's not an easy road, but once you get to where you want to be, then it's a beautiful, beautiful journey. Mm, Awesome. That is beautiful. But I tell you what, it it took your, your... uh, and I think the thing that a lot of people really probably are missing, and they're seeing the, the the glory part, the glitz part, the beautiful part, the lights, and all of this, the glamour part of what you do. Right. But they don't see how you had to work your faith. They don't. Un- they may not know the conversations that you had with the Lord exactly. when you first started writing these books. When you probably didn't, you couldn't see the ending uh, of the book you were just writing. But like you said, you didn't know where it was going to go. You didn't know why you were writing it. But it just goes to show that you were disciplined and you trusted your faith and you kept writing. And and I think that's something that is very important, and I think I really do believe that that's something that's missing, that Mm -hmm. a lot of authors don't say, well, you don't know my story. Exactly. You don't know how hard it was for me to do this. And then again, it may not have been hard for you. It may have been an an easy road for you. I mean, I think that most writers have a story to tell, but they just choose not to tell it. Yeah. And um, and because people have preconceived notions about what it means to be a writer, and when you say it's a, that you're a full-time writer, then all of the glitz and glamour pops up in people's brains. Mm-hmm. And they don't know, like, the sacrifices that we make. They don't know what we've been through. They don't know any of our journey to publication or any of that. And it makes it more difficult when you see because I get emails from writers all the time just telling me I want to quit my day job in six months you know what can I do to make it happen and I can't give advice on that because everybody's road is different and God has a different purpose for all of us and just because my journey took me to a place where I'm able to do this full-time it may not be someone else's story because I've seen authors think that it's going to be that easy and they get one book, they self-publish that book, they quit their job and, you know, or they start um, a publishing company and then it's not successful and then they have to go get a, a a regular day job again or they start doing freelance editing and then they still have to go to work again because it's not paying their bills and they're frustrated and then they're looking at me like, well, how did you do it? You know, because everything I just listed, I'm doing that. I'm a freelance editor. I have a separate publishing house, but yet I also write for a mainstream publisher and they're wondering, well, how do you do that? And I say it's because it's the favor of God. He put that calling on my life. Just because you did that for me, he may have a different story for you. It's not meant for everybody to be a full-time writer or to be a publisher or to be an editor. You have to pray over these things, and you can't go into it just thinking that you'll get rich or for the money. You have to do it because God called you to do it and because you love what you do and you'd be willing to do it even if you didn't make any money at all and then the money will follow. But you can't chase the money and think that, you know, God is going to push you in the direction. You really have to chase God, and then along the way he'll reveal to you your additional talents, and then he'll make the money follow that, you know, because money follows movement. 
It's like your actions, you have to be in line with what God has for you, and he'll set all of that up, and then things will manifest. But I wouldn't encourage anyone to just step out because they're tired of their day job or any of that, and they just want to do something, and they think writing will be easy or any of that, because being a writer is not easy. You know, we have deadlines. We have things that we have to do, too, especially when you write for a publishing house. There's things that you have to do. When they tell you, I need this book by this date, Sometimes you may not feel inspired to write every single day, but you have to discipline yourself and you have to pray about it. And you say, God, give me the story and let the words flow and then let him tell your story and that's it. you know. But some people don't have the discipline to sit down and finish a book in three months or six months. And it takes discipline. It does because if you're a writer, you have to do what your title says. You have to write. You know, you can't be a writer and not write, or you can't be an editor and not edit, and all of that. You have to you have to know what you're doing, and you have to trust God, and you have to follow your calling and not look at someone else's blessings and envy that or covet that. You know, covet that. You have to just stay in your lane and do what God's called you to do and do things in His timing because God will let you know when it's time to leave that job. He'll let you know. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I know, Brian, Brian, are you okay? Are you over there shouting? No, I ain't shouting yet, but I'm getting ready to. I mean, the information that you're giving, you know, I'll say like this. We've had a lot of people that have come on the show and, you know, with different various topics, Mm -hmm. but none of them have given us this deep, deep insight into the mind of women like you have. Wow. So, well, thank you. I'm so, honored. And so we're loving this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, uh, again, you know, a lot of our listeners, they may take, you know, notes so they go back and say, well, this is how I can better understand my spouse or my girlfriend right. or my wife or what have you, or even my friends or my sister or whatever. You know, but it also gives the opportunity for the women that are listening on the show to give an account for themselves to, you know, take notes um, and see how it applies to their life. You know, because they may have been that woman that had been, you know, always wanting more and, you know, not realizing that, you know, you can't be like, um, you know, Victoria Rowell on the soaps and, you know what I mean? You can't be like that, like Lady, uh, that Lady Chandler that has the million-dollar husband in the empire. Mm -hmm. You know, right. and you know, but they look at it and they say, "Well, why can't I have that?" And then right. they go to blaming either themselves or their spouse. Absolutely, you know, and it that that risk because the man is trying to figure out what's wrong. Right. You know, I'm doing the best that I can. Right. And, you know, and it's really not him. Right. It's and, and it's really not. And I'm glad you said that because the biggest thing that guys have to understand when they're dealing with women is that most of the heat that a guy receives from a woman, it really has nothing to do with him. Situations make women react. Women are more reactive than proactive. Like, for example, if a woman knows that her gas tank is low, she's not gauging like, okay, well, before I get home, I need to stop off and and fill my tank up with gas. She's thinking, do I have enough gas to get me home tonight because I'm too tired to go to this gas station. It's cold outside. It's whatever. I don't feel like pumping gas. What does my my uh, meter say? Do I have enough to get me home and then back to the gas station on my way to work in the morning? If it says that she has enough, she's okay with that. But a guy will get in her car and say, how can you drive on fumes? You know, what were you thinking? The car could have stopped or this, that, or the other. And women don't think like that. That's not how we're wired to do that. So it's the same situation when we're in relationships We expect the guy to just do things that we think he should do. Like, for instance, if we want a new pair of shoes and it's a choice between the shoes or the water bill, we're like, you should have both because we need these new shoes right now and that water bill, you know that's a given, but we want a man to be able to do our wants and our needs instead of just saying, okay, you know what, I got this great guy here he pays the mortgage, he keeps our lights on, he does whatever to keep the household running. And if I just worked even part-time, I could go ahead and, and buy my own shoes 
and I could buy stuff for the kids or whatever, then we'd be okay. But see, the problem is that, again, it goes back to the programming that women don't want to just be okay. They get frustrated with that man for not being able to do everything that they think he should be able to do. And most men now, they're not wired like that these days. And the reason for it is because most men now are struggling and women aren't used to that because what we see on TV is the guys who are thriving. What we're seeing with our celebrity women are the ballers who are buying them these, you know, 20 karat rings. And we're like, okay, what's that about? And the first thing a woman thinks is, I'm just as pretty as her. I'm just as smart as her. So why does she get the rich guy? And I got this guy who's working at KFC somewhere. They're wondering these same things, and they're comparing themselves to the other women and figuring, like, well, this woman's married to a doctor, this woman's married to this, and she's not even as pretty as me, so why does she get that and I don't get this? And then they're blaming themselves, having internal pity parties, so when they look at their man who they loved when they, you know, met him and fell in love and did all this stuff, and he was good enough then when they were just judging him by his character and how he treated her, but then now that they've allowed all these other things to infiltrate their psyche, now it's like, okay, it's not good enough anymore. It's not good enough for you to just take me to Golden Corral because now I want you to take me to whatever expensive restaurant I want to go to, if it's Bones or whatever in Atlanta. You know, so it's a difference. You know, what's good enough when they you first get the woman is not the thing that's going to be good enough when she's exposed to more stuff, when she's in corporate America or when she's got more friends or as she gets older because now she's exposed to more and then she wants more, and then when he can't give it, now she's looking for something else. He's not good enough. So what men need to understand with women, and I hate to say this because I know they're going to be like, I can't believe she said this, but a lot of guys are really loving on borrowed time, and they don't know it. Mm. Yes, just loving on borrowed time, meaning that if your woman found a guy who was richer than you or if she found a guy who did whatever it is that you're not doing in that one area that's important to her at the moment, then that guy could could turn her head and, you know, that's it. And it would, she would really be, in a, and she wouldn't think twice about how she would leave because in her mind she's already calculating many ways anyway. Man, if I, if I had this rich guy, I'd be gone. Or, you know, if I had this whatever. But usually for women, as they get older, financial security and stability is what keeps them good to go. But when younger women, it's sex. So that's just it. You just look at what age group your woman falls into, and you'll know her priorities. If she's young, that's usually what it is. It's more important to her than your money or any of that. It's looks and sex is what satisfies young women, but money and status satisfy older women. Mm. And black eyes come with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> indeed, when indeed. When it's love and you start going into that, there's a price for that. Absolutely. And I, Brian, I was sitting here writing down. I am going to download this show, put it on the screen, <laughs> give it, and give it away. I am just, Oh my goodness, that I is hilarious. I can't wait. I'm going to give it to one of the meanest <laughs> folks I know. Because you hear these kind of conversations, <laughs> you, you hear these conversations all the time. I, you know, I, I hear women talking about men all the time, and oh yes, I, and 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 some, and, and I just look at them, and men. I mean, we have our crazy, stupid conversations as well. But some right. of the things that they're saying, I'm like, oh my goodness, they, how can you say this? And this is your husband, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Well, what happens in your bedroom needs to stay in your bedroom. Why are you telling your friend about what's going on in your house? Right. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. I mean, I think that women definitely should not discuss that. But I, I think that, again, it go, with women, women really, men think that women are so complicated, and to some extent we are. But there are some things that if a guy took care of, if he really took care of these areas, he he would pretty much have his woman where he she wouldn't even look at anybody else. She would be like his. But the problem is that most guys don't know what the areas are, and so they don't know how to fulfill those areas, and so they don't know how to please their woman the way that they need to. And the few guys that do get it, 
then they're fortunate, but most guys don't get it. And so they're always, you know, reacting to the woman's mood swings, to her constant, you know, never being pleased and never being satisfied and so on and so forth. So it's it's a vicious cycle, but I I think I'll have to write the book on that one (laughs) and just say what it is and put it out there and just say, here it is, guys. Okay, we're we're really not as bad as you think. Well, then again, we are, but, you know, if you knew how to handle it... (laughs) You know, knew how to deal with it, you know, then you'd be better. You know, your mind wouldn't be going all over the place. I'm going to predict this now, Greg. Go ahead. That will be the best-selling book of yes. all time. Yes, yes, yes. It and you know what? Put, put, I'll sell the Bible. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, that is hilarious. Now, now, Steve Harvey put a book out. Oh, yes, he did. About the men. Right. Everywhere you read is always something to help women. Right. But there's really not much out there that that people can tie in and tap in with a man to say, okay, this man has feelings. Right. This man loves his wife. This man loves his family. But right. you don't hear that. You only That's hear true. about books that are teaching the woman to have the upper hand. What yes. happens with holding hands instead of one trying to be more dominant than the other? Right. That's a very valid point. I mean, and it definitely is something that needs to be done, but I think that it's harder because of the images that we have going on right now. We're such a glamorized society. We want so much right here, right now. And right now it's like bigger is always better in our society in terms of whoever has the bigger house, whoever has the biggest SUV, whoever has the biggest bank account. All of that ties into what's being the images that are constantly being bombarded to everybody right now. So for women, it's like the things that might have satisfied a woman's grandmother or even her mother, women now aren't being satisfied with those same things. It's like if your grandmother was able to raise 10 kids on on one check and, you know, everybody they had a roof over their head, then that was okay. But women now are like, no. You know, I don't want that. They want the the house that their parents got after 30 years of marriage. They want that to be their starter house. They want to start where most people worked all of their life to get to in previous generations. Nobody wants the little teeny house. Nobody wants to start out like that. Nobody wants to ride around in the messed up little car first. Nobody wants a a little point three carat engagement ring or something. Everybody wants how many carats, how big it is, and all of that. So it's always the pressure. I mean, if you really even think about it, women do this without even blinking. When a woman says, oh, I got engaged, the first thing they want to say is, well, let me see the ring, because they have to inspect it to see how big it is. They're not saying, you know, if it, if the ring size wasn't a big deal, nobody would want to see it. They say, oh, okay, congratulations, and she could get married with a little band and no diamond at all. But the point is that now it's so materialistic. The society we live in, we're just so materialistic that it puts that above anything else. I mean, right now, if a guy has money and power, he can get nearly any woman he wants, even one that's already married, if he has money and power. He doesn't have to look good. He doesn't even have to have a great personality. But money talks in this society. So when you said about going back to the holding hands and all of that, we would really have to get back to being more more like let's see how to put this, more more in touch with our core our core morals and values is yeah. what we need to go back to. We need to go back to being more traditional in order to go back to that place. But right now we're so far from it that it will be really hard to just do it because everybody's out for something. And that's true. Don, we, Don, we have about, what, two minutes maybe? We, we want you to give out your information as far as your contact information, if you're able to come out and, and do speaking engagements, if you're, if you're into that. Um, sure. Yeah, and I'll just give out your information. All right, thank you, thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed this opportunity. Thank and you. let's see here. For me, my website is, as I mentioned previously, it's www.dwanabrams.com, and that's D-W-A-N-A-B-R-A-M-S.com. And I'm currently on a book tour, so I'm doing a lot of Internet things right now, but I'm also doing different cities and book signings, so you can visit my website at dewanabrams.com and get my complete tour schedule. 
And my books are currently available wherever books are sold. And my latest release is My Mother's Child. That's the standalone sequel to Divorcing the Devil. And I think that pretty much covers it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, yes, and I do do speaking engagements. In fact, I have a signature writer's workshop called the Just Write Workshop, and I do that at churches. I do that anywhere if anyone requests me, different conferences and so forth. But that's um, my signature workshop. You can contact me on my website and find out more about the Just Write Workshop. And as I mentioned, I also have a publishing house called Nevia Publishing. That's heaven spelled backwards. And we have 10 fiction titles coming out this year, two nonfiction titles, and we're currently accepting submissions for 2011. Awesome. Brian? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> well, we thank you for joining us tonight. And it has been my pleasure. Good. Yes, thank yes. You. And we're definitely going to have you come back again soon. Thank you. With that, I would love it. Listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour, we thank you for joining us tonight, and we ask that you please join us again next week as we'll have another wonderful and exciting show. Good evening. God bless you all, and good night. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.